this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Joseph Clark, author of the book News Parade, the American Newsreel and the World as Spectacle, published in 2020 by the University of Minnesota Press. Newsreels debuted almost at the dawn of the film age and quickly became a vital part of the news process. In this interview, we discuss their history as well as examples that illustrate the importance of the newsreel as part of the movie-going experience. Welcome, Joseph Clark. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joel. Nice to talk to you. You too. You're, um, we're talking about your new book. Uh, just came out a month ago called News Parade, The American Newsreel and the World is Spectacle. Joseph Clark is the author and it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. I have to say that uh, the nice thing I find with doing the interviews that I do is I get to interview people who have talked, who have written about film in a variety of different ways. I, sometimes I talk to people who read, wrote about a specific film, a particular genre, a particular director, and it's great. But I also like it when I can sort of figure out a way to get media into it, because that's my other interest. In hist- media, media history is something that is of a great deal of interest to me, and especially during this period that uh, newsreels were so popular or so well-known. So thanks for uh, writing the book so we can talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. Before we get more into depth about newsreels, because uh, we want to obviously dig into the book, why don't we talk a little bit about your background? Uh, you're currently in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, so in Canada. So, but uh, what kind of what's your educational background? What do you do there in, in Vancouver? And uh, what kind of other uh, background writing or other work have you done? And has it been related to newsreels or is this something that's come up to you more recently? Uh, well, I've been thinking about newsreels for a while. Um, I have, so I started out as a, um, I'm a sort of historian at heart. I did a master's degree in history before doing a PhD in American studies, um, at Brown. And, um, when I made, and so it was through the course of my PhD that I moved, you know, it's funny that you mentioned media versus film, I, my trajectory is one from being a kind of cultural historian to becoming a kind of media studies, media historian. And then now I think of myself as a film historian. So I've moved sort of along that, that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that kind of spectrum. Um, and really I came, um, to newsreels by, um, when I was doing my master's thesis, I, I was working with a, a Mexicanist historian and I wrote my master's thesis about, uh, the Mexican revolution and media images of it and, was sort of inspired by the uh, John Reed book, uh, Viva Mexico, and the, the sort of anecdote that Pancho Villa sold the rights to the Mexican Revolution uh, to Mutual Film Corporation and their newsreel operation. And so I decided to write about the news coverage, uh, the film news coverage of, of the Mexican Revolution, and discovered that, you know, since Raymond Fielding's 1967 book on the newsreel, there hadn't been anything written about the newsreel. So um, that's when I kind of realized that there was a big gap uh, and that no one had really thought about this um, this form of media, this film form, and uh, that there was a there was a lot of work that needed to be done um, in light of 
the great work that has happened in media studies, but also in film, uh, film studies, film scholarship, film theory, because, of course, writing in 67, Fielding wasn't really thinking about any of that. Um, and so I just felt there was a big gap. So I, it was a project that I worked on throughout. It was, you know, my dissertation project um, and eventually uh, turned into the book. So I've been thinking about newsreels for a long time. It feels like a long time. Um, but I'm Canadian um, and, you know, just it was through circumstance and uh, opportunity that I got to go to the U.S. and study American studies and uh, work at Brown with some great Americanists and American historians, as well as some great uh, media theorists and media historians and film historians. And it was really that combination of influences that uh, formed the way that I do my scholarship, which is a kind of, you know, um, again, that you that you would like um, point out that line between media studies and, and film studies, I think, is right in as much as I try and work both sides of that line in my work. I try and speak to questions that are posed by film scholarship, but uh, apply them to films that have generally not been considered by film scholarship and would more likely be considered by media historians or communications people. Yeah. And of course, the thing about that is interesting to me about um, newsreels is that they're obviously like obviously as we as you pointed out, since there hasn't actually been a lot written about them in recent times, maybe they're a little bit forgotten, and maybe people need to come back to them both for as primary source material, as ways of comparing um, how news was covered during the period of time the newsreels were so popular. And also for a variety of other reasons, including the actual filmmaking part of it, because it's not like there weren't a lot of newsreel um, companies at the time. So there are quite a few of them throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, in, you know, the, there's a way in which the newsreel, it, first of all, in North America, it, newsreel showed in, you know, by the late 20s you know, 80, 90% of movie theaters were screening at least one newsreel, either before the feature film uh, or between an A movie and a B movie kind of situation. Um, so they were, they were virtually ubiquitous, uh, like a huge part of the movie going experience in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, and uh, actually a really important global phenomenon, um, especially in the silent era, but even in the sound era, but especially in the silent era, newsreels were a relatively um, they were they're they're a they're a form of filmmaking that is easy entry, you know, so for countries that don't have a developed um, film industry where there aren't studios to shoot you know, features and so on. Newsreels were a way for, um, you know, local uh, filmmakers to get their start because it's, you know, basically if you have a small, you know, if you have an editing operation and a couple of cameras, you can put together a newsreel. So there were newsreels in South Africa, in the subcontinent, all over the world, um, you know, largely modeled on the U.S., you know, uh, model, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real global phenomenon. So yes, it, it, uh, and there's great work, you know, I, I know beginning now to be done on those other, those other locations, you know, that's, that's an archival challenge that I couldn't, uh, that I couldn't meet when I was writing this book, um, because so much of, uh, the archival material is local as well. But they, but in terms of its timeliness, I think you're absolutely right. There's lots of reasons that the newsreel speaks to our moment, uh, but there's also um, because of digitization um, and the hard work of great archivists, this is a moment when newsreels are becoming easier and easier to access um, as, as you point out, primary sources. Um, and so I think I, I hope my book can kind of serve as a bit of a guide so that people who want to use newsreels as primary sources, either in, you know, written historical work or documentarians that are looking to use newsreel footage in their filmmaking can properly contextualize those images and understand why those images look the way they do and kind of read them in a way that, um, that both, uh, respects the context in which they were made, but also can read them critically according to how we might want to see them today. 
And that was the other thing I was going to say, and you mentioned it, is that, and you actually said it right at the beginning of the book, the fact that you can now watch so many of these and, and for long periods of time, I mean, you're, you're, you know, we've got an incredible amount of newsreel footage around that's particularly obviously World War II, but even before then, where it's just unbelievable how much material is out there from different countries and different, uh, even in the same country, different studios. You can actually do a comparative study of a particular event and use newsreels to point out how the news media covered this particular form of news media covered it. The other thing I found interesting is that I just didn't under, didn't know really, maybe it's just lack of knowledge, is that um, there were newsreels before sound even came into moving pictures. And which means they actually, I used to think the radio would, would have come first before newsreels because of the sound part. But as it turns out, it's the other way around. Newsreels actually came before radio began to get involved with news broadcasts, although obviously radio got much stronger over time, but newsreels actually came first. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the newsreels, when they were introduced in the early teens, I think the first one in North America was 1911. Um, you know, really the newsreel was a compilation of actualities and the actualities were individual kind of news or, you know, um, true story, true nonfiction films um, that date back to the earliest uh, cinema. So really, you know, the newsreels have a history that goes right back to the beginnings of cinema. Um, and um, they definitely predate sound. But as you point out, they are heavily influenced by by radio once once sound is introduced. Most of the newsreels are the narrators are borrowed from um, from radio. And so there's a kind of um, uh, crossover um, that happens in the 1930s between radio and the newsreels. But uh, yeah, no, they have their own. In fact, many people in when sound is introduced to the newsreels actually lament uh, the introduction of sound. They think that it ruins, ruins the purity of the, 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 the recorded image of the filmed record. Uh, and that adding this kind of like sensationalist narration is really spoiling um, the, the, the purity of the newsreel record. I did a little bit of search just for, you know, when I was getting ready to prepare for this interview, just went on YouTube and just put in newsreel and, and it's just unbelievable how much is out there. And there are the, some of the silent ones are out there. I know probably just like a lot of other silent and early film, many of them are probably gone completely, but there are some examples and some quality better than others. But so you can actually see examples of silent newsreels. And I would assume that uh, World War One was an important, uh, the newsreels played an important role even as early as World War One. Oh, for sure. I mean, World War One was the first time that the newsreel became a box office draw, um, you know, it had been around for for several years before the war. But during World War One, um, you know, the seeing um, seeing the news on screen became a reason to go to the movies um, that it sort of hadn't been before um, or hadn't been the main reason. Um, and uh, yeah, so for sure. And, you know, if people are looking for examples of newsreels, YouTube has many. Um, I would say uh, um, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, has a great YouTube channel with lots of really good examples. Um, and um, same thing at archive.org is a great is a great um, location to find um, newsreels, silent and sound ones. Um, yeah, and the, the, the main public archives, the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections, they have a YouTube channel. Um, the UCLA Film and Television Archive has a YouTube channel. Um, those are great places to find, you know, the, 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 the archival material and sort of see it contextualized by archivists. Um, sometimes YouTube, you find lots of stuff, but it's, you don't, you have limited information about it. Um, and so I would encourage people to, 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 um, use YouTube, but use it to find the, um, the archives, um, YouTube channels where they have some, uh, some added information so you can contextualize when and where those images are from. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, YouTube's a great place, but just like a lot of the other parts of the web, it's not particularly well curated sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. as you point out, companies use it as a place to put their you know, their archives, but aren't necessary. But it, like you say, is the more information you can find about something, the easier it'll be to tell that, you know, find its value. Mm -hmm. Of course, as you pointed out, uh, uh, the average person or the only way for a person to see a newsreel for as long as they were in almost mm -hmm. as long as they were in existence um, would have been as part of going to the movies. Um, back in the day, the average movie going experience was not just one film because, you know, you'd go in and you'd, you'd have a whole program. You'd have short subjects. You'd have cartoon, possibly travelogues. But then it was not unusual before the feature film or between films, you would get the newsreel and people became more and more interested in following. As you say, they they would come partly for the especially for the newsreel because it became a way to see things as opposed to the radio, which might have been more up to date or more current or the newspapers, which have obviously were there even before either of them. But seeing it was be gave people the opportunity to see some of these things for the first time. That's right. I mean, so during most of the period that I focus on, which is the sound era, 1927 to roughly the end of World War II, is the focus of the book. Uh, but this is true through most of the 20s and 40s. Um, yeah, the 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 newsreel is twice weekly, so it's not. It wasn't the place you went to find out what happened because the newspaper would always scoop the newsreel on the basis and radio would always scoop the newsreel on the basis of finding out just what happened. But for the same reason that we can read a box score of a sporting event, but we still want to see those highlights. I think people want to see, or they certainly did want to see, um, they wanted to see for themselves what they'd read about. And, and there was, I think, you know, the thing the newsreel is part of a change that happens during this period. It's not just the newsreel. I think uh, the photo magazines, uh, Life and Look magazine are part of this um, transformation, whereby people come to think of the visual as really the measure of their understanding of the world. Whereas like knowing what happened from a newspaper story is insufficient, where seeing uh, for yourself becomes part of understanding the world, understanding your place in relation to the world as well. And so the newsreel definitely kind of leveraged that. And it wasn't, the newsreel wasn't always a box office draw, but at certain moments when there were big stories or big events, uh, the newsreel did become an off, a box office draw where, whereby uh, exhibitors could sort of tell that audiences were coming specifically to see the new, some news stories. Yeah. So, the other thing about newsreels, especially um, as speaking of the motion picture aspect of it, there are many films that have used either obviously mostly fake newsreels, but the, the concept of newsreels to try to present information. Uh, of course, the probably the biggest or the most famous example is Citizen Kane, where we have mm -hmm. an, theoretically almost an entire newsreel right at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a group of reporters and the production company looking at a, a rough cut of their first story about Charles Foster Kane's death. So we see the entire newsreel and it was done in very newsreel. It was, it was done in, in the format that the average newsreel would probably look like, including some of the language, some of the way words were, were presented, a very newsreel type situation. And then, of course, other films you were it's not unusual to see people in a movie theater watching about some event, either something during World War Two and things like that. So for the average person nowadays, their only real <laughs> information and only knowledge of newsreels is when they're used as examples in feature films. Absolutely. And I mean, one thing to point out, it's a, it's maybe a, a, a nuanced difference, but um, that uh, Citizen Kane uh, piece is really more modeled on the March of Time, which is more of a news magazine than a news reel. I mean, it, it, they're, they're closely related, but, um, you know, the dedicating 10 minutes all to one story was right. very unusual for the newsreel. Newsreel wouldn't do that. Um, typically most, most newsreels were 
six to eight stories crammed into 10 minutes. Um, but the, the March of time, which was a sort of, um, a news, um, news magazine, if we, that's what we would call it now would dedicate, they, they would also be 10 to 15 minutes, um, uh, but dedicated all to one story or maybe two stories in that, in that, uh, in that space. And so that, that, that Citizen Kane, it's almost, I mean, it, 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 it's pretty clearly modeled on the March of Time, um, in that, in that, uh, in that film. Uh, but, but you're right. It, it becomes a device. Uh, it becomes a device for fiction filmmakers to, um, recall the past because it has, the newsreel has that kind of distinctive, uh, narrative style, um, which I talk a bit about in the book, but you, you know, people will recognize, and that certainly was common to both the March of time and to, and to the newsreel itself. Um, and people recognize it, the titles, um, the kind of, it's almost like a, um, a kind of, um, a uh, carnival barker voice, um, I think uh, that sensationalizes, um, news and gives it a kind of, Air and so yeah, we. That, I think you're absolutely right that it's in those fictional um, contexts that we're that we're most used to hearing that voice and recognizing it. The interesting when we're talking about the Citizen Kane example, people don't all, don't really know it. The person who ends up becoming the interviewer throughout the entire film is the person doing the overdub is doing the voice in the newsreel, the news right. on the mark. It's actually him. It's just his, he, as you point out, the, the voice, there was a certain type of voice that you had to use for these kind of things. And so it's him, his voice is so much different that people don't always know that it's actually the same person who's uh, doing the voice as well as the, the talking through the rest of the film. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit now. Let's get into the book more. Um, basically, you try to you, your your book is set up to to look at specific examples and specific ways that newsreels were created and how they were developed. You don't hundred percent use a chronological format, but obviously to an extent there there's chrono, chronology in there as we've already talked about with you know newsreels going back into the silent era. Um, the first chapter is where you really give a breakdown of the system how mm -hmm. newsreels were created, how they became the system they became. Uh, what kind of uh, similarities? I mean, did most companies pretty much do their newsreels or create their newsreel formats pretty much the same or there were there differences in different ways? And when how long did it take before we got what would be likely be considered the primary format for newsreels? Yeah, so there's a lot of experimentation in the silent era, or, or and there's a lot of startups in the silent era. So there's, a, you know, as there is with, um, you know, before the kind of entrenchment of the uh, Hollywood studio system, um, it's easier for independents to operate during the silent era. So and that's true for uh, newsreels. And so there are local newsreels um, during the silent era. Chicago, San Francisco, uh, other places have you know, basically city newsreels that are daily and, and often affiliated with newspapers. Um, and so there, there's a fun, there are more, um, there are more models, uh, in the silent era and things become a lot more rigid by the dawn of the sound era. And it's really sound that uh, does that because it adds an additional cost. Um, and it's a, it, and, basically this, you know, the rise of the studio system in the 1920s and the power of, um, the, the Hollywood studios, not just to program, not just to, um, force exhibitors to, to show their films, but to, um, include newsreels in their sort of, um, uh, block booking policies. So essentially it becomes very difficult for independent newsreels to operate by the mid to late 1920s because most exhibitors, you know, they're not, they don't want to book a separate newsreel. If a studio says, look, if you want 
the next Clark Gable movie, you also have to sign up for our newsreel. Um, most exhibitors, you know, for most of the time, the newsreel is not the thing that's determining their audience. And so they'll do that. And so the studios have a real ex- advantage uh, over independent newsreels. Um, and once they have, uh, you know, once they establish. Uh, that's the not kind, a surprise. Of, that's pretty yeah, much the, exactly. way, it's, it's yeah. the way the system works. Yeah, exactly. Works. I mean, it's media concentration, right? It's uh, it's a it's an old story. Um, so that but so the period that I look at is a period of relative homogeneity in terms of the newsreel systems because of that. Essentially, uh, there are five studio newsreels operating uh, Universal, um, Pathé, which joins up with RKO. Um, Hearst, which eventually becomes MGM, MGM and Hearst uh, cooperate, uh, Fox News and, Par- um, and Paramount. Did I name five? I think so. Uh, <laughs> um, and those the, those are the um, those are the main newsreels in North America, um, certainly in the United States, but uh, also in Canada as well. Um, the, Canada basically becomes an adjunct to the American market during this period. Um, and yeah, they're all they all have their editorial offices in New York as opposed to California. Um, they all have networks of um, paid cameramen throughout the world uh, who submit their um, their footage to the New York offices. Uh, they also buy footage from other newsreel uh, operators elsewhere in the world and also from kind of freelance camera people um, throughout the world and occasionally amateur footage. Um, but they have a network of paid cameramen. Um, working throughout the world, um, sending in footage, which is then um, it's uh, sorted through by editors um, that then cut the stories. And then those stories are um, scripted and uh, basically the narrator or eventually that you get some segment narrators. So sometimes there's a kind of women's page or there's a separate narrator for sports stories. Um, uh, But those get all um, the voiceover is added in New York and then from New York, the newsreels are distributed um, through the studio exchange system, um, which you know means that in New York, uh, the news is relatively fresh. Mm-hmm. They get it the day it's released. But it means that if you live in you know a small town in Kansas, you're probably watching the week the news a week a week late. Right. You know, so timeliness has. Um, some currency in the newsreel. There's a lot of competition for scoops. Um, The first film to show on Broadway is always considered a scoop. But the reality for a lot of Americans uh, is that the news that they're getting from the newsreel isn't just a couple of days old from when they read it in the newspaper, but likely a week or 10 days old from when they read it in the newspaper because of the nature of the distribution system. Well, and also the the nature of the whole you know, film has to be developed. It's got to be edited. Right. It's got to be. Yeah. So something that's that was going to be my next question. I I, understand, I figured, you know, news would be at different times. But and you in, in your first chapter, you actually use the example of Lindbergh's uh, transatlantic flight for your illustrative examples in the in the chapter. But how up to date, assuming it's in New York, uh, you're in New York. How up to date is it for an event? I mean, we talking a day, two days, three days, a week, oh, even for at they, the beginning. Oh, if they wanted to, they could turn it around really fast. So um, Roosevelt's uh, first inauguration, 1933, is a great example where that before the inauguration parade had concluded, films were already screening on Broadway. So what they had is they had camera operators uh, uh, shooting um, Roosevelt's inauguration speech and other parts of the inauguration day. And then they flew those films. Uh, some some of the newsreels flew them to New York for developing and release. Um, the I think, I hope I'm getting this right, but Universal was the one that uh, got the scoop. And they got the scoop because rather than flying it to labs in New York to develop and then release, they put a lab on a train so that they put the uh, undeveloped film on the train and then the train that went from uh, Washington, D.C. to New York had the lab on it so that they had prints ready when the when the um, or uh, when they had a master ready that right. could be duplicated uh, by the time they reached New York. And so uh, 
I, I might be getting the studio mixed up, but uh, whichever studio had that genius idea uh, made it first to Broadway. So occasionally, you know, they worked real hard um, to get these scoops, scoops onto Broadway. And so the Lindbergh, you know, the, the, the flip side of that is the Lindbergh film, which in order to get the footage of Lindbergh landing in Paris, the film had to be brought back to, to the U.S. on a boat. So it's not going to screen on New York uh, on New York screens for you know a couple of weeks after Lindbergh lands in in Paris or a week at least. <laughs> so um, it's a real mixed bag. Um, what's interesting, I think, about the newsreel is the way that it talks about itself and its urgency, and often narrates the efforts to which the newsreel goes to get the news uh, fast to its audience. And I think that's important because, you know, so much of the way that um, scholars have talked about television, for example, is in terms of television's liveness, um, its ability to broadcast live. But lots of scholars have also talked about how that liveness is often um, not is 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 more of a discourse than it is a reality because we're very used to watching live on tape um you know and so we get the sense of liveness but we also get um the the, the sort of limitations of the the industrial system and i think that that uh, is sort of anticipated by the newsreel which understood that speed was going to be important to it but also the mechanics of yeah of of the film process meant that it could never be instantaneous uh in the same way that radio, for example, could be, um, but it could still compete on a kind of, um, on, on urgency. And, and, and one of the, one of the ways that it did that is that it, um, it, uh, it always narrated events on screen in the, in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Um, so instead of thinking of this as a two week old film of Lindbergh, uh, landing in Paris, audiences in the theater could feel like they were reliving the event of Lindbergh living, uh, landing in Paris in that moment. And so it was live live for them, live in the screening room, live in the theater. Um, and so one of the, the, the ways that the newsreel did that was narrating thing in the, in, in the present tense as if things were happening right now in front of you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, of course, as you pointed out, and we can obviously make the comparisons with some of the... Even your point about how how the various newsreel companies got their footage, including occasionally amateur. We're now in a period of time in the 21st century where amateur footage has become incredibly important to, to news broadcasting and um, the idea that some, that people, and, and of course the timeliness part of it um, there, there, even though the time factors were much less, there was, there is still a lot of similarity between you know, the whole idea of trying to scoop or be first and how sometimes that meant the information might be presented in a more uh, variety or, you know, of who was first or how up to date and how correct. It's like anything like newspapers. If you only have the story from when it was, when whatever the newspaper went to press and so on and right. so forth. Right. Yeah. And, and as you say, you know, the way that we consume now news now is so much, um, um, you know, sourced from amateur footage. And yet, yet that footage reaches us, not just filtered through the media organizations, or if it is filtered through media organizations, it's with relatively little editorial control in the form of social media. You know, um, you can think of Facebook and Twitter as media organizations, but they're not exercising much editorial control. Uh, and so amateur footage is now becoming the news in a way, uh, unfiltered, uh, in a way that, uh, we haven't seen before. And unfortunately, that's the part where we get into storylines about how media 
trustworthiness or lack of trustworthiness, there's still the editorial system that is the backbone of of any media going all the way back to the news, you know, the early newspapers where you never got the you never got it totally, quote unquote, unfiltered and and nor should you necessarily, because the whole idea is it's being able to tell whether something's trustworthy or not. Were there issues with newsreels where there might be disagreements from one company to the other as to what did or didn't happen? Yeah, there, I mean, there, I think there, you know, there, there are, for example, some, some very famous uh, anecdotes about kind of you know, faking the news or recreating events for the camera. Um, and one thing that becomes very clear when you watch the um, watch the outtakes, which are a huge portion of the the archives of the newsreels, are really outtake footage. What you what you learn immediately is that the newsreel um, was not uncomfortable with uh, reenactment. Um, there's often multiple takes of you know politicians and others um, reading speeches or or answering questions for the camera uh, but also um, you know performing actions or moving for the camera so like they there was often multiple takes indicating that the newsreel was constructed um, not simply a record right mm-hmm. um, so and there were um, yeah you, there were kind of editorial um, um, differences between the reels, you know, um, Hearst had a reputation for being, uh, conservative relative to universal, for example. Um, but I, 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 I don't see that as, um, it's, it's not the focus of the book, the kind of political leanings of the individual reels, because I think the, the broader, um, consensus between the reels was of a shared view of the world. Um, and, um, while, they expressed their, um, you know, partisan or um, political leanings uh, through what stories they told and what stories they didn't. I think those are are, are more important. Um, What's more important is that is the kind of uh, commonalities between the reels, the way that they, you know, imagined America's place in the world and the the place of uh, especially white American viewers in relation to the world, um, and uh, kind of created a, a sense of Americanness uh, in relation to the world that was based on the privilege of being able to watch that world from the kind of safety of the American news theater. Right. So what was it? What did newsreel? I mean, obviously they did. What kind of a structure did a typical newsreel have? I mean, obviously they weren't they were only one reel. Right. So 20 minutes was pretty much the longest they would tend to be. Right. Yeah. Or, or even 10, shorter mi- than- 10, 10 minutes would be standard, right. um, you know, give or take. Um, yeah. And you said, as you pointed out, in some ways, it's something like the evening news where in that one period of time, you're going to get six or, you know, a certain number of stories. And so therefore none of them are going to be covered uh, for the entire time. Um, What kind of a structure as far as I would assume, like uh, the main story and then things like that? It's surprising. There's a there, there is quite a bit of variety, uh, and different reels go through different phases with this. But uh, yeah, definitely, um, Fox, for example, uh, had for a time a like f- what they what they use the language. This is the front page. Uh, this is the women's page. This is the sports page. And so there was a kind of um, newspaper. Um, sec, uh, section kind of model that was applied to the newsreel. Um, and that, you know, makes sense to me. And, uh, and other newsreels kind of either explicitly or implicitly kind of copied that, even if they didn't identify the sections, it was arranged with kind of international news at the front. Um, and then um, uh, domestic news, and then uh, either, you know, um, uh, kind of, um, um, kind of more frivolous news of one kind or another, you know, um, um, human interest stories, that kind of thing. And then, and then sports at the end. So that was a common structure, but also I think there was an enough variation that sometimes newsreels moved between those sections. Um, there wasn't a kind of set order 
Um, those all those stories might be included in a reel, but not in the order that we might come to expect, which is like the more serious, more um, um, more important, quote unquote, important news at the beginning, getting towards the, the more trivial towards the end. Newsreels were really designed for variety because there was a recognition that the audiences were very heterogeneous, right? That a newsreel had to play between a feature film and a B-movie, that meant that your audience could be age-wise, um, interest-wise, very diverse. And so the variety of the newsreel was really designed to appeal to as broad a possible – that some of the stories would appeal to as many people as possible. And so sometimes that was, as I say, kind of ordered in a, in a kind of newspaper segment either like here's a section for dad, here's a section for mom, here's a section for, you know, the 15 year old sports fan, that kind of thing. Um, but then there was also newsreels that just kind of everything seems almost thrown together in, in a deliberately eclectic order in order to maintain the interest of as many of the audience as possible so that people couldn't kind of switch off and decide that they were going to go to the bathroom right. during the newsreel, you know, oh, that's um, true. <laughs> if you put it, when you list it that way, it does make sense because as you say, um, keep them there, keep people's interest and do that by quickly going from one type of story to a different type and then coming back. Exactly. So you've, you've spent a chapter in in a lot of detail about the actual role of the newsreel camera person and their importance, obviously, to all this. And the fact that uh, these camera people went out and often, as we know even now with other news media, into areas where uh, they could be dangerous or could be issues. And, and in newsreels, what was... Obviously, the, as we pointed out, it was the cameramen who were bringing back all the footage. But what was the role of cameraman as far as the actual production of what the news would be? That varies. Um, there were uh, there were definitely stories that cameramen were assigned to, and you know there there are a very very small number of women who, camera operators, and the, but re essentially it, this was a masculine endeavor that was advertised as a masculine endeavor and promoted as a masculine endeavor. So if I use cameraman exclusively, it's because. You know, with with only the smallest number of exceptions, it was true that they were almost always men, and they was certainly they were um, promoted as manly men. That their manliness actually becomes like a big part of the idea of the myth of the cameraman. So, um, uh, and so occasionally there were assignments, or or not infrequently they were assigned to stories. When there was, you know, when when editors knew that a, a big story was happening, they would send either send cameramen to that place. But often cameramen had the freedom to find stories for themselves as well. Um, and when they did that, they would submit their stories along with newspaper clippings or, uh, you know, extensive notes to fill in the details uh, for um, the editors and the, and the, and the script writers who would write the commentary. Um, so there were, they had some, so they were, Reporters as well as camera operators in some in some real sense that they had the freedom to to find the stories, uh, even if they had been assigned, for example, to go cover the Sino-Japanese War. It was up to them to find the best shots, the best angles, um, you know, um, the, to, to find the, the most sensational uh, images and so on. So they had uh, they had a fair bit of latitude with what they filmed once they submitted it um they lot they that was that was it um they they used to um the camera operators the cameraman would submit a dope sheet a kind of a shot um list uh, often with quite colorful notes and descriptions uh but once those reached new york 
they were in the hands of the editorial team that then transformed it into uh, into what they wanted and so the cameraman kind of lost so they weren't and they're uh, at least for through most of the silent era and in most cases the cameraman did not appear on screen or at least um, only only occasionally when they themselves became part of the story so it wasn't the case that they were kind of on screen reporters in the sense that we have foreign correspondents today for example um, or even in the television era where you know um, they were definitely behind the camera but often but that didn't stop the the newsreel companies from promoting their cameramen as being particularly intrepid or, or daring uh, and going the extra distance to get the most sensational uh, footage and uh, you know that chapter that you're referring to where I talk about the cameraman and that kind of myth of the cameraman um, I focus a lot on the stories from the sino-japanese war uh, because that's really at the height of the the America the the newsreels power in the 1930s and uh, I think it works as a very clear lens to see um, this kind of myth of and the ways that the newsreel promoted its cameramen as kind of stars in themselves or as as kind of myth- mythological figures in themselves because it had all the drama of a war zone. I mean, it was a war zone and it had that drama. But um, for Americans, the Sino-Japanese War, for most white Americans anyway, um, uh, the Sino-Japanese War uh, wasn't something that that um, impacted their lives. And, um, you know... You know, that changed, Um, you know, occasion. um, I talk about the bombing of the USS Panay and the ways in which that kind of threatened to kind of puncture this kind of distance uh, that Americans had um, when looking at the world and certainly the the coming wars around the world. Um, But I would argue that the newsreel helped maintain that distance a little longer. It helped hold the events of the world at a distance so that Americans could see the spectacle of world events, spectacle of war, devastation um, up close because of the daring of the cameraman, but at the same time feel separated from it, distanced from it, uh, as if this wasn't something that impacted their lives. So then you start in chapter four, you talk about the concept of the newsreel audience um, mm-hmm. and and how in particular, and you, you talk about Translux Corporation, um, and it, it was the newsreel audience becomes the important, you know, their, their role. What is the role of a newsreel audience? And you use, like I say, you use Translux as your example. And where you call them the, uh, the public forum of the screen, the idea that the people who are watching newsreels are active participants, are active viewers, and therefore it becomes it's, – it's important as far as various aspects of how Translux in particular. What was different about or what, what, what was the idea of people as active viewers in, in, in this example? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as men, you know, any historian, especially historians of film going, movie going, uh, will tell you it is so difficult to try and understand how audiences at the time received, responded to, understood the films that you're studying. Um, And that's especially difficult for the newsreel in some cases because, you know, it's just a part of the program. And so there weren't really reviews in the same ways that we have film reviews from the past and that often newsreels went uncommented upon. So I was looking for ways to think about the audience because I wanted to talk about the ways in which audiences responded to these films. It seems, you know, it's an important part of the story. And uh, so in order to kind of like, um, negotiate that. I, I I looked at the architecture of the Translux uh, film theaters in particular, but uh, and some others as well to try and first think about how. Um, well, the first thing I should say is that newsreels were not just a part of uh, regular film going programs, but there were a lot of um, dedicated newsreel 
uh, movie theaters, especially in big cities, um, and uh, often associated with transport hubs. And Translux had one of the biggest uh, chains of these theaters in the uh, on the east coast of the United States: Washington D.C., New York, Chicago, um, uh, Boston, and so on. Um, and uh, these were theaters where you would see newsreels, maybe other short films, travelogues, those kinds of things, um, screening in a kind of constant program so you could come and go as you wanted. Um, and um, Translux had this chain and there were other chains like Telenews um, and other independent newsreel theaters uh, throughout the United States. And they were very popular in Britain, actually, um, especially during World War II. Um but, um, you know, the, those specialized theaters gave me an opportunity because when the newsreel was part of a regular movie going experience, it was a relatively small part of it. Right. So if someone had written about going to see, um, uh, you know, a Laurel and Hardy movie at, um, you know, the Radio City Music Hall and there was a newsreel at the beginning you know, if they'd written about it in their diary, they'd be talking about the Laurel and Hardy and they might just mention the fact of the newsreel and there would be no record of it. Um, so these specialized theaters were a venue where the exhibitors themselves and the newsreel distributors and often journalists were talking about the audience and the way that they related to the films. And it turns out that, you know, in those conversations, the audience turns out to be very vocal and um, and for the newsreel um, distributors or the, and the studios, this was a problem. They wanted newsreel audiences to be quiet and happy, and they didn't want the newsreel to disturb uh, their audiences before the feature film. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they want the news. You know, the whole point of the feature film is to be an escape from the world. But the newsreel is this intrusion of the real world. The flip side of that is the exhibitors themselves. So the Translux uh, exhibitors, but other the also the independent newsreel exhibitors, they loved controversy and often courted controversy because for them, where the newsreel was the draw for their for their uh, theaters, they really wanted uh, audiences to have lots at stake in what the newsreel was. And so they openly courted controversy. And when the newsreel audiences were cheering or booing certain personalities, um, they applaud, they wanted more of that. So they're, they're at odds with the, the studios in this sense. And there's lots of confirmation from journalists, lots of columnists, um, seem to enjoy going to these newsreel theaters uh, and theaters generally to hear how audiences were responding to political figures. It gave them a sense. It was a kind of vox populi. They could kind of gauge public opinion on certain things by going to newsreel theaters to see how the audience was responding. Uh, and so there's a lot of kind of anecdotal um, newspaper accounts, as well as trade publications talking about the, these kind of vocal audiences. And so I knew that that was part of the newsreel experience, hearing your fellow newsreel audiences, audience members, you know, cheering one political candidate over another would have been part of um, political coverage, uh, laughing at the, you know, hilarious, you know, animal, stupid animal tricks would have been part of it too, obviously. Um, but it, it really didn't come together for me um, until I came across this wonderful piece of evidence, which was, uh, we talked about the March of Time, um, which was a recording of a March of Time film called... Um, uh, peace by Hitler, uh, which was sort of a tongue-in-cheek title about how Hitler had broken all these peace treaties that came out in 1937, um, and uh, March of Time had already uh, made us made a film about um, Hitler's Germany, and it had been very controversial. Uh, German groups had said that it was anti-German. Uh, Jewish groups and others had said that it was pro-German, uh, and so they hadn't. They had made nobody happy. So by by 1937, they wanted to make this film about um, like Hitler's expansionism and the, the treaties that he'd broken. Um, and so it was um, when uh, so I found what I found was an audio recording, a vinyl record that had been made 
of that March of Time film being screened at Radio City Music Hall when it premiered in New York. And on, so you hear not just the film, but you hear the audience. You hear the audience applauding the bravery of the British people um, as, um, I guess, sorry, if I said 1937, it was from 1939. So the, the British, uh, the war had begun, but the United States had not entered. Um, and uh, they're, the, the, they're, they're kind of applauding the British efforts. But, and there's, but then there's a more mixed response to Roosevelt's actions in support of the Allies. Um, and then Lindbergh appears on screen. And initially, there is a smattering of applause. Um, and then that applause is greeted by resounding boos. Booing both Lindbergh, but also the people who had applauded for, uh, like, to me, I think fairly clearly, they're booing Lindbergh for his kind of isolationism at this point, but they're also booing the people who applauded Lindbergh. Uh, and so that, it was a breakthrough moment for me because it, first of all, it confirmed all of this kind of anxiety that the exhibitors and the distributors and others were feeling about, you know, the responses of audiences in the theater and the potential for kind of, um, like sometimes the potential for violence that that's what exhibitors worried about and distributors worried about, but it confirmed all of that. But it also told me that it wasn't just that newsreel audiences were responding to the screen. They certainly were, uh, and responding both positively and negatively, but it illustrated for me that newsreel audiences were responding to each other and that that meant that the newsreel theater or the, the theater where newsreels were shown, uh, whether they were specialized or not, was a place where audiences spoke to each other as well as to the screen and sort of it became a public forum uh, where audiences could debate, uh, you know, in the dark, at least, um, you know, um, the news of the day. And so during election campaigns, you know, there I'd read columns about audience members applauding or booing various, um, you know, political candidates. And while I don't have audio recordings of all of those, this one did illustrate for me the ways in which an audience might kind of engage in this kind of debate uh, in the darkness of the theater. You were talking earlier about how political experts would come in and listen to the, how audiences reacted to their candidates. It's good to know that focus groups existed long before <laughs> current days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. So then the last chapter uh, before your conclusion is one that I found particularly interesting, especially uh, for its purpose. And that's the All-American News Newsreel uh, series, which is different in that it was catered. It was meant to cater to African-American audiences who obviously were going to the movies just like uh, – the white audiences were, were often, though, they were in theaters, especially in the South, where it was just African-Americans viewing, uh, not necessarily either or predominantly. So all American news is, 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 I think, a particularly interesting concept of how um, the, they purposely tried to develop a newsreel that would be of interest to African-Americans. Yeah. I mean, in lots of ways, it's a response to segregation, right? It's a response to segregation in the theaters, which you mentioned, right? Um, African-Americans are, you know, either watching theater, uh, watching movies in, in movies uh, in theaters that are black only, either because they're in African-American neighborhoods or because they're in um, segregated towns in the South. Um, or else they're watching... Um, Movie th movies in segregated movie theaters, either by law or by tradition, you know, uh, or by sort of fact, uh, mm -hmm. de facto segregation. Um, so relegated to balconies and so on. Um, and so there's a fact of segregation in the theater, but there's also a fact of segregation on screen, whereby, um, especially during the 1930s, um, you know, the newsreels, I mean, they say that the reason they don't cover African-Americans is because they're worried about Southern exhibitors uh, cutting up their prints and, you know, making a mess of them. But the, the reality is that, you know, they like many things about the newsreel during this period, the 
important thing for the studios is not to um, ruffle feathers. And, right. and so they basically exclude African-Americans except for in occasional comic relief caricature type uh, stories, but exclude African-Americans from the news. And so, you know, de facto, African-Americans are segregated from the news as well on screen. And that's an issue throughout the 1930s, but it becomes a, uh, of a special importance during the war, uh, during the Second World War, when African-Americans are joining up and participating in the war effort, a segregated war effort, by the way, at least at the beginning of the war. Um, and um, they recognize that those sacrifices need not only to be made in order to uh, make the case for civil rights post-World War II, but they need to be seen uh, after the war as well. Uh, and so into that space steps All-American um, with the kind of tagline showing you our people's contribution to uh, the war and America. And so they're very explicitly trying to demonstrate uh, African-American participation in the war effort. There are It's not exclusively war news, but uh, one of the reasons that the All-American is able to sustain itself is that they are accepted into the, um, the Office of War Information um, uh, news pool and they have access to the signal core footage uh, and that's an important source of um, uh, film for them they show wonderful signal core footage of african-american soldiers participating in the war effort um, within the united states and abroad uh, both in europe and in and in asia um, and so it's a way um, at least what it pitches itself as is um, finally, the efforts of the African-American community during wartime are going to be made visible uh, through this newsreel in the same way that white war efforts are being made visible by the mainstream newsreels. Unfortunately, you know, uh, well, or, you know, not surprisingly, th there's lots of critiques of All-American from within the African-American um, community uh, because for many organizations, the uh, All-American seems like not just a response to segregation, but a kind of accommodation to it, right? Because, okay, rather than having representation of uh, black soldiers and the African-American war effort integrated into the mainstream newsreel and thereby <laughs> <word> be there. <laughs> seen, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And thereby be seen not just by black viewers, but by white audiences, uh, which you know, it's if it's important to be visible and make the contributions visible, it's important they be visible to white the white majority. Um, it, by uh, kind of accommodating itself to segregation, many um, writers um, it, writers in the black press and the NAACP worried that All American was in fact segregating black news into this kind of news ghetto that would only be seen by um, by African Americans and thereby like serve to um, uh, kind of get the mainstream newsreels off the hook for screening um, uh, black news and sort of almost exacerbate the, the the division. And so it was criticized as a kind of Jim Crow cinema, uh, a Jim Crow newsreel that sort of accommodated itself to segregation. So it's a kind of mixed bag. It, 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 I mean, for us, looking back, it's a hugely valuable source of information about black life uh, and the black war effort, which otherwise would would not be recorded. Um, fortunate now, when I wrote the book, none of these films were uh, really widely available. But now the Library of Congress has um, a bunch of all-American newsreels uh, digitized on its uh, website. So if people want to see these films, they can go there and, and see many of them. Um, but, you know, it's it's it meets with a lot of criticism from uh, from the black community that see this newsreel as um, with lofty goals. But because of the realities of segregation, it's uh, kind of ill equipped to to meet those goals or it's not going to satisfy them. Well, it's it's it just shows that uh, the issues related to race and popular culture and and political and and all and in this particular case with uh, the war uh, is still there uh, was is there in a great amount and 
the more it gets studied, the more interesting and useful the information becomes. That's why I felt that that chapter in particular, and not that the you know the rest of the book's great too, but I mean I <laughs> love that chapter because it brings out a topic that uh, is certainly important anyway. But uh, you know it, uh, it it's a it's a conversation that is going on throughout everywhere now, especially. But uh, yeah, it, it actually adds to the overall conversation. Yeah, I think what um, what I think is really in, kind of valuable about that history is that it shows that, um, you know, part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to show how there's a kind of rising importance to visual representation and how it's it's becoming more central to American civic life, American identity, et cetera. And I feel like what that uh, art, uh, what that chapter really demonstrates is that African-Americans knew what was at stake in this growing vis like visual culture, right? Because they understood that in order to be, to secure civil rights, it wasn't enough to argue a legal case or to, you know, affect some kind of respectability politics where you proved your worth, but all of that had to be made visible. And, you know, uh, 20 years later in the, or 15 to 20 years later, that's the civil rights movement kind of uses television in order to make visible the, the, the extremes of Southern racism, right. Mm -hmm. Um, in order to, uh, argue for civil rights and, you know, our moment now, African-American activists are, uh, are using, uh, the visual evidence of uh, police murders um, uh, of uh, uh, of black men and women as um, as the means by which they can articulate their um, their grievances and their demands. And I think this history shows that you know very early on there was um, you know the debates around All American are really a recognition that the the kind of politics of the second half of twentieth century were going to be politics that were going to circulate circulate around image and representation and uh, for uh, black newsreel audiences already understood that uh, at least implicitly in the debates that happen around the all-american uh, news yeah the the, the continued um, in uh, saga of race in this country in particular and how each of these various examples, you know, newsreels specifically for African-Americans. Uh, eventually, then we get some we get uh, integration in the military and so on and so forth. And then in the 60s, uh, people saw on their televisions and, the you know, white people would say, oh, this is terrible. And they suddenly agree. Yes, people should have everyone should have the right to vote or where to live and civil rights. And then we get into the stages of you know, oh, yeah, that's terrible. And now we're to an area where one of the big differences seem to be that it is the uh, the continuate. It's the idea that everybody's together uh, arguing the the terrible aspects of things rather than just saying sitting back and saying, yeah, that's bad. I'm, I'm sorry that that's happening. But now the idea is now we get to the step where you, everybody's doing something about it or going to try to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, the and you know, the realm of visual culture becomes a place, um, it becomes both a, a means by which we come to that realization, but also a, a site for those debates and for those arguments, right? So much of the, um, you know, the, the activism that's happening now is visual in nature, right. you know, uh, you know, painting Black Lives Matter in huge letters on the, on the, on the sidewalk in front of the White House is an understanding that like image matters and, and uh, the visual is, is, is a means of, uh, of affecting change. Well, I can't believe the hour and we're actually over an hour now, but it, it really flew by. I, it, there is so much information and examples in this book. And I think uh, uh, you you present great examples to make the points. And I think uh, as people review the book and, and focus on parts of it, that they can actually go and watch some of these uh, newsreels just and then other ones and try to make their own uh, thoughts and ideas based on it. So it's like anything else that's visual related or, you know, media wise. And since I do film podcasts, it's important. The ability to go back and watch uh, is so important 
in all of our academic uh, uh, material because you don't have to sit there and just say, oh, that's what it was like. You can actually go and watch them yourself. So Absolutely. that's so great. So I really appreciate your time. This is, like I said before, it's a subject that needed that is it's great that it uh, is getting some uh, some needed uh, uh, awareness. Great. It was my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you. My thanks to Joe Clark. I hope that you take the time to view many of the great newsreel examples on YouTube and through other sources. They will definitely add well to the information provided in Joe's book. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. <laughs>